Amen. Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Psalms in Psalm 119, as we continue our study of this, the longest chapter in the Bible, with the Word of God open before us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bless you, God, for your word, for its power to enlighten our hearts and our minds, to grow us in your ways, to reveal to us, O God, our sin and our Savior. We pray this evening, our God, that it will have that effect upon us, that you will enlighten our hearts and pour out upon us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in your true knowledge that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We offer these prayers, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 9. We're in the second stanza of this psalm, and you remember it's an acrostic psalm, so every letter of this Every verse of this psalm begins with the Hebrew letter bait, which you won't see, or B in the Hebrew. You won't see that, though, in English, of course, but it's there in the Hebrew. As we continue our poetic meditation on the Word of God and on its power and priority in the life of God in the soul of men. If you want to have God's life in your soul, you must have His Word in your heart. That's the, the big theme of this psalm. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all Riches, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Well, tonight's stanza addresses itself to a young man, but it might just as well address itself to a young lady. How can a young man keep his way pure. Your way, of course, is your manner of life. You walk down a road of life, a way set before you. Uh, And the psalmist asks and addresses the young man, why do you think it starts with a young man, not an older man? Well, there are several reasons, of course. We should spend our best days serving our best master. You'll never have the strength again that you have now, young people. These are your days of your strongest body, your strongest energy, or your mind is strongest. You'll never have the capacity to memorize later what you could memorize now. These are the best years of your life. There's things I read when I was in my early 20s that I can still remember now. The first book I read as a coming to Reformed Faith when I was 22 was Lifting Up of the Downcast. I can still remember pa- passages of that book without even turning to it. Um, how Chrysostom was, was threatened, the great 
um, golden mouthed preacher was threatened by King Queen Eudoxia of Spain, who told him to stop preaching, and he replied, Nil nisi peccatum matu. I fear, tell that woman, I fear nothing but sin. I remember that and didn't have to try and memorize it. It stuck in my mind when I was 22, and it sticks in my mind today. I can barely remember things I read last week. When I, when I graduated seminary, when I was um, 30 years of age, I thought I've got, you know, 30 or 40 more years studying if God spares me. I really didn't at about 10 years, and then it's very much downhill all the way after that. And so, what you learn now, you'll never forget. And so, you should spend your best day serving your best master. You never have the freedom again that you have now. As a young person, you're not encumbered by a wife or a husband and children. You are your own master in a, in a worldly sense. You can go where you want. You can do what you want. You can spend your time, by and large, as you want when you get your homework done and so forth and so on. You have much more freedom now than you realize. And you can spend that freedom serving yourself, or you can spend that freedom serving God and building a foundation for the future. And of course, as well, you've got to remember that habits you make when you're young are hard to break when you're older. And that's true for the good and for the bad. John Blanchard says, habits that begin as cobwebs often end as cables. You make a habit, and then your habits make you. Theodor Dostoevsky, the famous novelist, said, the second half of a man's life is often made up of the habits he acquired during the first half. I think that's true. J.C. Penney the famous clothier said, the best way to stop a bad habit is never to begin it in the first place. So, in your youth, you're in, if you want to end up as a godly man or a godly woman when you're older, the best way to do that is to start striving to be godly now, to remember your Creator in the days of your youth, which is spend our best days serving our best Master. A second reason why the psalmist addresses the young man is because your way is already dirty. The um, ESV does not do a good job of translating verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? It kind of assumes that um, your way is already pure. Actually, the Hebrew could be better translated, how can a young person scrub his way clean? It's very intensified. It's a PL verb, which is intensified. You can clean or you can really clean. And then when Hebrews want to say really clean, they don't use the word really. They use the form PL in the verb, which is a grammatical form of Hebrew, which is not really that important for you in your Hebrew, but is important in your life. How can a man scrub his way clean? Our ways are already dirty. And like anything in life, the longer you leave something dirty, the harder a job you'll have to clean it when you finally get round to doing it. And then also, a young person is often prone to procrastinate repentance. They tend to think to themselves, I've got the rest of my life to live. I can put God off for the future. I can live it up now. Well, for all of the reasons I just stated, that's a bad, um, that is a bad uh, plan for your life. Give your best days to your best master. How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, I think the rest of this stanza will answer that question in particular, but in the second half of that verse, he answers his question in general by guarding it according to your word. Interesting, the Hebrew word there 
is the word used of Adam in the garden. If you remember, if you turn back in your Bibles a second to Genesis chapter 2, you often, if you remember um, my sermons from then, and don't stress it if you can't, I can barely remember my own sermons. So if I wrote them and I can't remember them, sometimes I wonder what hope do you have. But nonetheless, in Genesis 2, you remember God put Adam in the garden, and we're told, let me see. Yes, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Well, the actual Hebrew, those sound like gardening words, right? But actually, the Hebrew are much more priestly words. They're much more um, worshipful words. You put him in the garden to serve it and to guard it, to serve it and to guard it. Those are words used of the priests in the temple. And of course, if you remember, the Garden of Eden is set up like the temple. The temple faces east. Um, in, Hebrew, in Ezekiel 47, there's water flowing out from the temple, waters of life, and there's water flowing out from the Garden of Eden. There's gold in and around the Garden of Eden. There's gold in the temple. And of course, God walked with man in the garden. And also in the temple, there's lots of arboreal imagery. The menorahs are built like the branches of a, a, a tree. And then on the inside of the temple curtains, there's lots of leaves and trees embroidered, um, arboreal imagery. The temple is a, is, a, is a rebuilding, as it were, of paradise. When you go to the temple, you're not just going to meet God, you're, you're going back to paradise. You're going back to the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. And of course, as well, the cherubim guard the temple and the cherubim guard the Garden of Eden. And Adam being put in the garden to serve it and to guard it, um, his work is described in priestly language because he is the first priest in this garden temple. And so, um, if you want to cleanse your way, David is saying, or the psalmist is saying, that you must do what Adam failed to do. You must guard your heart. You must guard your way. Your way, the path of life that you're trying to live, is under constant attack by the world and the devil, of course, and the flesh. And it needs constant tending, constant guarding. Remember what God said to Cain, evil's desire is for you. Sin lies at the door of your heart, and its desire is for you, but you must um, rule it. You must overrule it. And likewise, Satan's desire is for you, young men, young ladies, and he wants to corrupt your way, and your way is already corrupt. Excuse me. But you must guard it and keep watch over it like a century. Well, how do you go about doing that? That's the general rule, by guarding it according to your Word, by, by, by being in the Bible and, and studying the Scriptures and understanding um, the many wrong paths off the right way and so forth and so on, and the many enemies that stand against the right way. Got to be in the Bible. Are you in the Bible, young man, young lady? As um, John Piper's grandmother wrote in his, in his Bible flyleaf, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. 
which half of that equation is true of your life at the moment. Is this book keeping you from sin, or is sin keeping you from this book? One or two of those things is happening in your life right now. And if you want to keep your way clean, if you want to cleanse your way, you've got to be in Scripture. God's Word has a cleansing power over the soul, as we will see. Well, if that is the general truth, what specific counsel does the psalmist have for a young man or a young lady, and also for an older man or an older lady, what's good for the goose is good for the gander? Um, how, can you, how can you cleanse your way? And he has three things to say in this psalm. First of all, the psalm stresses the importance of devoting your heart to God. Devoting your heart to God. And then he talks about disciplining your heart with truth. And then thirdly, delighting your heart in God. Or uh, devoting your heart to God, disciplining your heart with God, and delighting your heart in God might be a more memorable way of putting those truths. Let's continue then together. First of all, by devoting your heart to God. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. I have sought you, literally. Let me not wander from your commandments. This language described the settled, purposeful disposition of the heart set towards God. With my whole heart. The heart, you remember, isn't just the organ of affection. In the Hebrew mindset, the heart is the whole inner man, your personality, the real you. When you close your eyes, the person you're alone with in the dark space of your mind, everything behind your retina, if you want, is your heart. You think with your heart. In Genesis 6, verse 5, every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Your conscience is part of your heart. When David cut the robe of, of Saul, the Hebrew says his, his heart struck him. His conscience bothered him that he had attacked the king, even his king's robe, with his own knife. And of course, the heart also encompasses the affections. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, the psalmist says, or Moses says in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following. So, if you want to cleanse your way, you've got to devote your heart to God. Give your heart to God, lock, stock, and barrel. God isn't asking for your pinky, not asking for your big toe, not asking for your right leg or your left leg or even your right arm. He's asking for your whole being. Devote your heart to God. It's the great essence, as the Puritans would say, the heart is the main thing in religion. If the mouth speaks and the heart is silent, God is deaf, Thomas Watson said. We devote our hearts to God. Interestingly, that is the answer. The problem is outward, my way. How can I cleanse my way, the place I'm walking, the path of my life? That's the problem. But the psalmist says that the problem is outward, having a clean way, but the answer is inward, devoting your heart to God. Your way will never be clean if your heart is wayward. Is your heart, have, you, have you given your heart to God? Now, of course, that's the problem with a living sacrifice. It keeps on crawling off the altar, right? But are you engaged, young person, older person, young man, young lady, 
older man, older lady, are, are you involved in the great daily business of devoting your heart to God? It's a wonderful little book by David McIntyre called The Hidden Life of Prayer. And in that book, he says the great, the great duty of the Christian life and the great struggle of the Christian life is in getting the heart to God and then keeping the heart with God, because our hearts are prone to wander away. Devoting your heart to God. And yet the psalmist knows that such a purpose, such devotion is not the only answer, because his heart is naturally wayward and prone to wander. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander. He knows the purpose of his heart's not enough, right? He's devoting his heart to God, and yet he knows that, that such devotion and maintaining such devotion, the wanting to do that and actually doing that is an ability beyond his natural capacity. And so he immediately betakes himself to prayer and says, Lord, let me not wander from your commandments. It's prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take thy grace, Lord, and seal my heart for thy courts above. I can't remember the whole verse, but you remember the, um, um, come thy fount of every blessing. We need God to hold our hearts steady. I was watching a, a man walking his dogs um, on Instagram, and he had dogs which were quite unlike mine, which being translated means they were well-trained. And he's walking along, and the dogs are walking to his left and his right with no leash. And he says, my dogs are free to, to, my dogs are free to enjoy life because they listen when I speak. And the dogs are just trotting along beside him. And he says, free, and they run around. And they go sniffing around the trees and everything, but no leaf, quite happily. And then he goes, I can't remember their names. Rover, Oscar, come here with me. And they immediately turn around from the trees and they come back and they walk beside him. He's walking on, talking to the camera. And he goes, Rover, Oscar, sit. And the dogs immediately sit. And he just keeps on walking on. He says, they'll stay there all day until I tell them to come. Rover, Oscar, with me. And they come beside him again. I'm thinking, oh, for a dog like that. <laughs> um, but it's never the dog. It's always the master, right? Um, it's not Baxter's fault. It's my fault. Well, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. But I'm not like that. I need God to take a leash. Because I don't listen to His voice. Lord, take a leash and chain me to Thyself, O God. Let me not wander. Like the shepherd, um, sometimes the sheep is so wandering that the shepherd will break the sheep's leg and then carry the sheep on his shoulder so the sheep will stop wandering from him and getting lost in all kinds of trouble. And the sheep become so used to the shepherd that after the leg is healed, um, the sheep will never leave his side again. And that's the psalmist's cry, Lord, whatever it takes, stop me from wandering from you. Do you have it within your soul to pray that? If you're in a good place spiritually, your soul is even now saying, Lord, do that to me. And if, you're not, if you haven't got it in your heart to pray that prayer, you're not in a good place spiritually. If you're happy wandering around, sniffing like a dog under every green tree. John Calvin says, just as, sorry, a sincere repentance from the heart does not guarantee that we shall not wander from the straight path and sometimes find ourselves bewildered. 
just as wives are offended by their husband's wandering eyes. You've seen the, the meme of the guy and his girlfriend walking along, and there's another girl walking this way, and he turns around to look at her, and his girlfriend's eyes are horrified. Well, God is offended by our wandering hearts. We say, Lord, please stop me from wandering. Keep me. Keep me. Keep me. Augustine says, Why do we not know the country whose citizens we are because we have wandered so far away that we have forgotten it? Why why do we live as citizens of the earth and not citizens of heaven? And Augustine says, We have wandered so far away we have forgotten who we are. But the Lord Christ The King of the land came down to us and drew forgetfulness from our heart. God took to Himself our flesh so that He might be our way back. That's profound. Not that He will show you the way back, but that Christ takes our flesh and comes to us to be our way back. I'm not asking you to be in the Bible for the Bible's sake. It's in this book that you meet Christ who is the way back. It changes your devotions. When you, you just read the Bible as words, that's not good. It's better than not reading it at all. Not good. And then when you read the Bible as God's Word, that's better. But when you read the Bible to find Christ and to commune with Him, that's best of all, to walk with Him and talk with Him in the garden of His Word and to commune with Jesus. So, you're going to cleanse your way. First of all, devote your heart to God, and in that devoting, recognize that that's only half the battle. You've got to keep your heart with God, and for that, you need God's help. Lord, grace, teach me to say no to every bypath meadow and to live sensibly and righteously and godly, to walk with you, O God. Secondly, discipline your heart with God. Verse 11 and following, I have stored up, or literally, I have treasured your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Something else I read when I was very young in the faith, I think it's in Thomas Watson's um, Body of Divinity, I can't remember, but I remember reading it. The best thing, thy word, in the best place, my heart, and for the best reason, that I might not sin against you. Actually, it was, it's Charles Spurgeon's Treasury of David, I think. The best thing, God's Word, in the best place, my heart, for the best reason that I might not sin against you. God's Word, just simply hiding God's Word in your heart has uniquely and powerfully sanctifying effects. Don't believe me? Turn in your Bibles a second um, to Joshua 1, verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Notice, it's having God's Word in your heart, meditating upon it thinking, muttering literally in the Hebrew, muttering it like a person memorizing something over the, under their breath, a phone number, nine one two three four five six seven nine two, right? And you mutter it on your breath. That's, that's, that's the Hebrew idea of meditating, talking to yourself about God's Word. 
And, and God says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, Joshua, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do. You'll never be careful to do God's Word if you aren't careful, first of all, to memorize God's Word. There's a direct proportion to how much of God's Word you have in your mind and how much, of, how much obedience you have in your life. What does Jesus pray in John 17? Sanctify them by thy truth, what? for thy Word is truth. God's Word has a uniquely and powerfully sanctifying effect upon the hearts and lives of God's people. That's the first step of disciplining yourself with, with God. Memorize God's Word. Jerry Bridges says, memorization is the first step to meditation. Chesterton says, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind is the same as opening your mouth, and that is to close it on something substantial. Open your mind, young people. And close it upon God's Word and hide God's Word in your heart. If I could say this again and again, if I could recommend one thing that would make the biggest difference in your lives, memorize God's Word every day. Download um, Fighter Verses. Desiring God has this program called Fighting, Fighter Verses, and it gives you five years' worth of weekly memorization. of All the key verses to memorize are there over five years. It's there, and you, it, it, it costs you five bucks, the best bu five bucks you ever spent. And memorize God's Word. If you do nothing else, I'd rather you spend time memorizing portions of God's Word than reading your Bible in a year. Reading your Bible in a year is a great thing to do, but I promise you, if you'll, if you'll, if you'll memorize Scripture, it'll change your, the way you think, and if you change the way you think, it'll change the way you speak, and if you change the way you speak, it'll change the way you live. That's the step one to disciplining your heart with God, memorizing Scripture, hiding it in your heart. Then secondly, learn. Memorize and learn. Blessed are you, verse 12, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Right? It's, it's a little bit like, children, if you've ever taken piano lessons, right? There's no point going to your teacher if you haven't practiced. There's only so much you can do when you go to a piano lesson. If you haven't been playing the piece and working through the piece and getting your fingers used to the, to the key and the, the notes and so forth and the chords, when you go to your teacher, you'll be wasting your time, Right? You've got to be working on it yourself during the week, and then when you go back to the teacher, she can say, okay, not like this, hand position differently, you know, whatever, right? And she can help you. Well, likewise, you memorize God's Word first, and then you come to God and say, Lord, teach me your statutes. Now, the two go hand in hand, of course. You don't do the one without the other, but when it comes to growing your soul, if I can say this reverently, the Holy Spirit has to have something to work with. A tabla rasa is not good, a blank slate. Fill your mind with Scripture, and you'll give the Holy Spirit things to work with. So David, in Psalm 16, verse 7, says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Here's a man tossing on his bed at nighttime in the darkness, or maybe standing sentry on the wall of Jerusalem. 
keeping guard. He hasn't got his Bible there. He's not reading his Bible. He's, he's, he's asleep in the darkness, or he's a sentry at nighttime, and God counsels him. How? In his mind. How does God counsel him in his mind at nighttime? Because he brings to his memory things he's learned from Scripture. He's memorized. And you find God as as you memorize Scripture, you'll find God brings these things to mind in hours of temptation, hours of confusion and doubt. You hide first God's Word in your heart. And as you're doing that, then you come and say, Lord, blessed are you. Teach me your statutes. Memorize. Learn at God's feet. And then thirdly, speak. Never be a dead end to truth. How do you discipline your, your, your soul? You memorize God's Word. You ask Him to teach you, and then you speak. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Never be a dead end to truth. It's like, um, what's his face? Ezra. Remember Ezra? Ezra 7, verse 10. Turn there a second with me. Ezra 7, verse 10. There's a beautiful um, order in this verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He set his heart to study, to practice it, and to teach it. Never be a dead end of truth. What God gives you in your Bible study, share with others. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. There's a beautiful um, parallelism there. With my lips, I say what you've said with your lips. That's what he's really saying in the poetry. His mouth has become like the mouth of God. And that's our chief role as fathers and husbands, is to help our wives and our children just in the general conversation of the day to bring their lives into contact with God's Word, helping them to think through when they're stressed, when they're upset, um, is to help them process life according to God's Word. Devote your heart to God. Discipline your heart to God. And notice, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? Always remember this, boys and girls. Sin is not just breaking a rule. It's not just transgressing a rule, like when Baxter crosses the invisible fence in the, in the, um, in the yard, and he's wearing his collar. I don't take it personally. He takes it personally. He gets a shock, right? Um, I, I mean, I'd like him to stay inside the fence, but he's not really breaking my law. It's for his own good, right? Um, and we often think of the Bible that way. It's like a rule, the standard, I'm doing the wrong thing. No, you're not just transgressing a standard. You're, you're committing treason against a person. Sin against you, he says. 
Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, David says um, in Psalm 51. Thirdly, then, if it's devoting your heart to God and disciplining your heart with God, the third step to cleaning your way is delighting your heart in God. Notice the last three verses. In, your, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my way, eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Notice delight in verse 14 and delight in verse 16. It's a delight sandwich. What's in the middle? Ah, meditation again. I think there's a point to that, don't you? There's a structure there. How do you delight in God's Word? By thinking about it. No man is a hypocrite with his delights. What delights your soul delights your soul. What does it say about you and me if we don't delight in the words of our Creator? G.K. Chesterton says, the golden age only comes to men when they, have, when they realize they have forgotten gold. We've got to remember that we've forgotten the gold if the golden age is going to come. What's true gold? All that, is, all that glitters is not gold. Delight your heart in God. Turn with me in, in, in uh, Matthew 6 for a second. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the... Is the is, What's the context? He's talking about treasure, right? The eye is the organ by which you evaluate treasure. If the eye, if your eye is healthy, Jesus says, if your eye looks at treasure and sees treasure, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, if your eye looks at trash and sees treasure, or looks at treasure and sees trash, if the darkness looks bright to you, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, your eye, in you is darkness, how great will that darkness be? You can tell a lot about your soul by your delights. In what do you delight? And one of the dangers in our age is that God has given you a chemical in your brain 
that is supposed to respond to delight is called dopamine, right? And normally, in God's order of things, you get dopamine when you do good things. When you spend time with people and you talk to people, you get a dopamine hit. When you accomplish tasks on your agenda, you get a dopamine hit. When you get an A in your classes, you get a dopamine hit. When you get a C, you get a dot hit. That's very different. But when you get an A, you get a dopamine hit, right? Um, when you fall in love with someone, you get a dopamine hit. Um, when that person and you get married and you make love to them, you get a dopamine hit. And those things are designed to be to reinforce in you a life of productivity and success. One of the problems in our day and age is that the devil has given us much bigger dopamine hits playing video games, using internet pornography, and social media. I was talking to Ben Mann um, this week, and um, he said he, he, he was, he'd been doing a lot of thinking about this in his practice, his medical practice, and he, he says that social media is to girls what porn is to boys. Constant dopamine hits. And our minds are flooded with dopamine. And when your mind is flooded with dopamine, your brain says, just coast. You've got all the satisfaction you can have. Just lean back and do no more work in the real world. Live in the virtual world and get all your dopamine kicks there. And that's one of the reasons why our young people have dead eyes. Because our boys are addicted to pornography and our girls are addicted to, to social media. And their, their minds are flooded with dopamine in a make-believe world and have no energy left for the real world. It's very difficult to delight in words when your soul is caught up with images, good images and bad images that give you instant satisfaction. It's always the next image to look at, whether it's social media or whatever, the next thing to compare yourself with, the next thing to look at, the next, always the next video, the next reel, the next meme, and you spend your life looking at everyone else's life and doing nothing worthwhile with the one life God has given you to live. Wouldn't it be a tragedy, young person, if you, got, if you came to die, and when you came to die, you realized that you'd done nothing of value in the real world? Now, if something doesn't change, nothing will. What's going to change? Insanity is doing the same thing twice as hard, expecting different results. Delight your heart in God. How can you know if your heart is delighted in God? Well, your mouth is full of God. Back to Psalm 119. 
and we're really finished. Your mouth is full of God. I will meditate on your precepts. Hebrew word to meditate means to, to mutter under your breath. How do you know if you're delighting in God in this delight sandwich? Your mouth is full of God. You talk about Him. You're thinking about Him. You're talking about Him. William Grimshaw, the Puritan, said, Meditation is the soul's chewing. Thomas Hooker said, Meditation is a serious intention of the mind whereby we come to search out the truth and settle it effectively upon our heart. Thomas Watson said, Meditation is the bellows of the affections. I've got redneck bellows at my house from my, from my outside fire, not the inside fire. But the outside fire, the backpack blower, amazing. The fire's going out, get the backpack blower, turn it on, just on idle, put it down to the flames, and you've got an inferno in seconds. Meditation is the bellows of the affections. John Owen says, If I have observed anything by experience, it is this. A man may take the measure of his growth and decay in grace according to his thoughts and meditations upon the person of Christ and the glory of Christ's kingdom and of His love. Has your taste for the love of Christ grown sweeter this year than last year? You think more of His glory and more of His person and work. John Owen says, by this you can measure your spiritual growth. Our, our mouth is full of God. Our eyes are fixed upon God. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Like Baxter when I'm eating a steak, he looks at me. His eyes are fixed. He doesn't look anywhere else. He, his eyes are fixed on me. He's just sure I'm going to give him a little piece of my filet mignon. Entirely ill-deserved confidence, but I admire his optimism. But his eyes are fixed on me. Well, the psalmist's eyes are fixed on God. Are your eyes fixed on God? Our mouth is full of God. Our eyes are fixed on God. And our memory holds fast to God. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will not forget your word. Child of God, Spurgeon says, you cost Christ too much for him ever to forget you. Don't you forget him. You cost Christ too much for him ever to forget you. Don't you forget him. What a tragedy it is when we forget our Creator and choose instead to fall in love with His creation. That's madness. God's creation is beautiful, but to love it and to forget our Creator is madness. If the creation is worth loving, and it is worth loving, how much more the one who created it? If food is good, And the pleasures of food is good. If sex is good, and the pleasures of sex is good, 
If friendship is good, and the pleasures of friendship is good, if physical activity is good, and the pleasures of physical activity is good, how much more the one who made those things? One of our members is in New Zealand at the moment. He's posting um, his travels, and I'm having great envy watching the glories of the landscape, and, and it's just a beautiful place. God made that with words. If His words can do that in the world, out of nothing, what place should that word not have in your life and my life? Seriously. If God can make the universe out of words, the Milky Way, the golden bands that stretch across the night sky when you're in the desert, and if you're in a very dark place, you can see them, the stars the universe. If God can make that with words, what place ought His Word not to have in your heart, in my heart, in your daily schedule, in my daily schedule? What's it say about you and me? Wake up in the morning, and the first thing we do is check the news, or check the stock market, or check Facebook. And we've got the Word of God to give our hearts to first. How can a young man cleanse his way? By guarding it according to thy word. And remember, the word isn't just a letter. It's a person. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Develop the habit, young people, of never thinking of the Word of God without also thinking of the Son of God, because in a healthy soul, they both go together like water and wet. You have the one properly understood, and it leads you by the hand to the other. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And it'll change the way you read your Bible, you open your Bible, and how silently how silently the wondrous gift is given. You read the Word, and at times it's difficult, for me too. And yet as you read, and the book begins to read you, you find the presence of Jesus with you as you read. Oh, and what a difference that makes. Come to me, Jesus says, and learn to delight in me, the Word of God, by taking into your soul the book of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his mercies. Thank you for his word. I pray, Father, for every young man, every young lady in this room. Remember your covenant to them, O Lord, and send your Holy Spirit to them this night and open their eyes that they might see wonderful things in your word. Do that for their parents too that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We offer these prayers that your Son might see the travail of his soul and be satisfied in the way we deal with Scripture and in the way Scripture deals with us. Amen.